Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today's Monday, August 22nd, 2011, and this is episode 729. And if you normally skip the introduction segment, do not do it today. You will lose out on a great opportunity if you do. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but if you do and you don't get a chance, you're going to be upset, angry, and mad, so do not skip it today. First thing I have to say today, and I know he doesn't really listen to my show very much because, you know, profit, no honor, own country, that type of thing, but my son turns 22 years old today, so happy birthday, Matthew. Uh, next up today, I do want to uh, take care of our housekeeping before I get into the main subject, but today's main subject, of course, is a Monday, so it will be a listener feedback show. These are all emails of questions or articles or commentary that you've sent to me at jack at the com. That is my email. I give it to you every single show. Do not try to figure out how you can get stuff to me and do anything other than send me an email because that is the best way to get information to me. Email it to me, jack at the com. If it's for a show like this, put question for Jack or comment for Jack or video for Jack or article for Jack or something like that in the comment or the uh, subject and it'll get filtered in to be screened for that type of usage. Um, so we're going to have some really great stuff today and uh, a really great contest I'm about to tell you about where you can win something that just rocks from ready-made resources. But before that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors of the day. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one today is The Berkey Guy. That's at Directive21.com. The Berkey Guy, and you get his website, Directive, and the number 21.com. What will you get from the Berkey guy? This might be shocking, but you'll get Berkey water filtration systems along with some other great preparedness items. But he really specializes, of course, in Berkey filtration systems. And water is one of the most important things uh, that you can possibly prepare to uh, to do without. You know that in my own county, there's still several thousand people on a boil water advisory. There's still several thousand people without water at all. Now, it's not affecting us because we have a well. But there's been some problems with uh, the county water just right around here. Uh, due to some things breaking, and uh, there's a water main break that, that caused a big mess and a mudslide right off one of the roads that leads up to my place. And that's just one example. Whether it be these acute situations or long-term situations, you really need a way to purify water. And you also need a way, in my opinion, now this is my opinion, to get certain things out of your tap water that I don't believe you know should be there. The first big one is chlorine. I think chlorine's bad for us, but I understand why they put it in the water. It keeps the water safe to drink, so it's kind of a necessary evil. You cannot have public water without chlorine. So I accept it, but I don't like it. So you use it to keep the water safe to get to you, then you take it out with something like the Berkey. The other one, though, is fluoride. And I don't believe fluoride has any place in our drinking water. It is a poison. It is a toxin. And if you are drinking your tap water without removing the fluoride, you're drinking a poison and a toxin. You don't have to believe me. If you don't want to look it up, you can find out all out for yourself. But a Berkey with the added fluoride filters will get that junk out of your water. So for everyday use or for emergency needs, Berkey to me is the most cost-effective and best way to go. And, hey, the system looks great in your home wherever you put it. Uh, next up today, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said shelf, not self, but a shelf like you put stuff on. Why do, I, you know, why do they call themselves Shelf Reliance? Because what they really are are innovators in food storage. 
And they've built these great food rotation rack systems that are designed to allow you to eat what you store and store where you eat. The regular canned food that you feed your family every day, simply you put the stuff in the top, comes out the bottom, right in the order that it was placed in there. That way you're always rotating your food stock. Extremely efficient as far as the storage space that it requires. And the amount of food something like the Harvest 72 can hold, you really can't understand when you look at the picture online how much food is there. Uh, it, it, you know, you, you keep putting food in and food in and food in and, uh, it, it's a, it's like, it'll hold like 600 cans of food and it's like hundreds of pounds of weight i mean it's unbelievable how much food fits in one of those racks if you don't want a big system they have these small consolidator systems that go in like your pantry and your cupboard and shockingly enough are called the pantry and the cupboard and even those hold a massive amount of food i did a video with uh, the consolidator uh, pantry model and it was just ridiculous when i took all the cans out how much food that it really held so Check those out, and remember, they also have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food, some of the best-tasting long-term storage food uh, I've ever eaten. Also, remember, connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and the forum. Check out the Gear Shop. We have cool stuff at the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. You can link to everything from the survivalpodcast.com, and that is the best way to visit our sponsors. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you support the show at 20 cents an episode. Law enforcement, military, Peace Corps members, active duty or prior service, email me before you join. I will send you a special discount code, a national service discount. All right. Uh, I did say hold on through this, and I do have a big announcement today. It just took a while to put it together. Uh, but ready-made resources who gave away an AR-7 survival rifle uh, about a month ago is now giving away a Rock River Arms AR-15 upper uh, in 5.56 millimeter. So it is an amazing, amazing upper. And that means that you would need an, an AR-15 lower to use the upper. Most of you guys out there probably have one. And even if you didn't, you could go to your local FFL and buy the lower and put it together and assemble your own and avoid some taxes and have a very low-cost, high-end AR because everything you need that's really expensive is in the upper. Now, guess what? Since it's the upper, not the lower, it's not considered a firearm. You don't even If you win this, you don't even have to go through your FFL. All you, all you do if you win this is you send uh, Robert your, your, actually, you know, when you join, he'll have your address. He'll tell you you want and he'll mail it to your house. This is over an $800 value. It is one of the most awesome AR uppers I've ever looked at. I mean, it just, when you look at it, you just realize what a high end piece of equipment this, this really is. I will put a link out in today's show notes. I'll do a blog post on it later in this week. Uh, the actual MSRP on this $890. And remember, this is because you guys kick so much ass in joining the contest for the AR-7. What do you do to win? You fill out a form. That's it. That's all you got to do is fill out a form, and you can win this AR-15 upper. So uh, make sure you take advantage of this contest. This is a big deal for one of our sponsors to give away something this big, this expensive, and this nice. And I'm going to keep trying to get high-end prizes like this for you guys. Again, uh, you, in fact, I'll give you the, the URL. You can go right there if you're just on your iPhone or something listening. ReadyMadeResources.com forward slash contest and fill out the form. Spread this one around for me, folks. I don't get one, too, like last time, you know, uh, no matter how many join. But I want Robert to really get a big response on this. So post this on your blogs, post it on your Facebook, that type of thing, uh, because it's it's great way to expose a lot of people to the Survival Podcast as well. With that, we're ready to get into the main topic of today's show. I 
told you, I told you, I told you it was worth hanging with me uh, through the uh, intro segment this time. All right, the first thing I want to do real quick is just a real quick follow-up with you guys on Jan Klein and the amount of money that's come in to help support this lady who was uh, you know, diagnosed with terminal bone cancer and had her little yard sales shut down. She was making a couple hundred bucks a week to help you know, basically make her dying more comfortable is the only way I can describe this because it's not something she's going to recover from. Sure as hell hope she does, but I mean the odds are you know, a million to one against. And I mean, she's at a point now where her bones are so worn down from the cancer eating at them that she could literally, in her own words, break her leg by walking. And the idiots in the city decided that they would maybe try to find her some commercial property like a lady with bone cancer could travel to do these stupid little yard sales to sell away the last of the stuff she owns instead of issuing a simple thing called a waiver. So the Internet, uh, Survival Podcast, and people all around the Internet decided that maybe we would just solve the problem. And we couldn't make the city of, uh, of Salem, Oregon fix the problem. We could call them and bitch, and we did that on Friday. And apparently a lot of you did that uh, because they were kind of blown away uh, from a call I made. I could tell that they just really weren't they, – they just didn't ex- expect any kind of thing like this. And what they want to tell you is when I called these jackasses in Salem, the mayor's office, they almost tried to take credit. And we had several listeners tell me the same thing. They almost tried to take credit for all the donations. They're like, we've been linking to, to, to her website. Uh, for, for her donations. It's just wonderful. I'm like, you guys have had nothing to do with this. All right? And I want to tell you what's happened. I got an email in today from Brad uh, Bronover, who is the guy that set up the page for Jan, just set it up for her. He's an IT guy. And he said, uh, hey, Jack, I must say, you absolutely rock. Guys, that's not me. That's you. You guys absolutely rock. Thanks for taking up Jan's cause. Uh, we have, and I really appreciate all you have done in getting the word out. We're at $34,200 this morning, and things have just started to get rolling again for the morning. So thirty-four grand has gone in. Now, what came out of the Survival Podcast, I haven't actually officially added it up. I kind of went through it, kind of kept a running total in my head. It's over. It's over 8000 It's probably closer to ten. So that puts us at about a third of what everybody's done. And that's just those of you who sent your receipts in. That's all I have to say about it today. I just wanted, since everybody works so hard, to uh, to donate and you know I I threw in three hundred bucks. William Sutter, also known as Bill Sutter, put in a thousand himself, and he emailed me and said, "Go ahead and use my name." He's B Sutter on the forums. Great guy. He threw in a grand, uh, and because he did that, I'm going to tell you flat out: there were people that uh, that emailed me and said, "You know, I gave ten bucks the first time. I'm throwing another fifty bucks, and if that guy can do a grand, I can do fifty bucks." Uh, so Bill's effect was more than just the money he gave. And again, I want anybody that gave five bucks or ten bucks, don't feel guilty or anything, man. You helped. You helped more than you can imagine. That's five bucks worth of that lady's stuff she doesn't even have to sell. I don't think this lady's going to have a problem anymore. I really don't, other than the fact that she's got bone cancer and, and those problems. But I think as far as, I think we've done more for her than her yard sales would have ever done. And I think, uh, personally, I think this is what you should do. She should take all the money and use it to do whatever she needs to do for the, the end of her life treatment. And don't pay the IRS a freaking dime on it. And then when she dies, they'll get nothing because there's going to be nothing left. And that's some, some, <laughs> some solace, I guess, in knowing that we can at least cheat the tax man in, in even the worst situations. But, uh, God bless you, Jan. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope you beat this thing. Um, but, I think that, that based on what I understand, that that's probably not going to happen. And I hope uh, that we've made the end of your life a, a little better and let you know how many people actually really care. I want to say something, too, to everybody out there in the community. This is what prepping's all about. 
And the next time someone tells you that preppers are hoarders or preppers are crazy and preppers are this and preppers are that, why don't you just point them to this? Why don't you just point them to this? Say, this is what a community of preppers do. A community of preppers can do a third of what the rest of the Internet can do because we're prepared to give, because we're prepared to live. All right. All right. Let's go on from there. Um, I had Mike Gazer on last week and he was talking about the seasteading thing. And I, I looked up a thing and a few of you guys sent me some emails about it because it was all apparently in the news last week. And Christopher sent me this link on Yahoo News. I'll link to it today, but it's got a concept of this big platform and all this stuff going on and a big cargo ship pulling into it. And it basically the whole thing is that Peter Thiel, who is an early Facebook investor and the founder of PayPal, had gave a hundred, one, 100, no, sorry, 1.25 million to an initiative to create a floating libertarian country in international waters, according to uh, the, a profile of the Billionaire in Details magazine. Uh, let me read the rest of the article to you. Thiel has been a big backer of Seasteading Institute, which seeks to build sovereign nations on oil rig-like platforms to occupy waters beyond the reach of law of the sea treaties. Uh, the ideas for these countries to start from scratch is free, free from the laws, regulations, and moral codes of any existing place. The detail says the experiment would be kind of like a floating petri dish for implementing policies that libertarians, stymied by indifference at the voting booths, have been unable to advance. No welfare, loser building codes, no minimum wage, and few restrictions on weapons. There are a lot of people who think it's not possible, Phil said at the Seasteading Institute conference in 2009. According to details, his first donation was in 2008 for half a million. That's a good thing. We don't need to really worry about those people very much because since they don't think it's possible, they won't take us very seriously and they will not actually try to stop us until it's too late. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. I'll put a link to it in today's show notes. Here's my thought on this. I love the idea. I love the idea of going out and creating something in a place with no regulations and saying we're going to have as few as possible. Uh, there's going to be no taxes, no welfare, or whatever. I don't think welfare is an issue because to be able to afford to go to this place, you're not going to be a person that's going to be on welfare. I mean, it's just going to be impossible. They're actually, I've read some more on it. They're going to have a sea tax, right? So no taxes, but there's a sea tax. Now, what's the purpose of the sea tax? To build the damn thing. Right, if you're going to build a damn thing, well, somebody's got to pay for it. So people that are going to live there are going to have to fund at least some portion of it. Peter Thiel's only going to give so many of his millions away to do it. And probably building one of these things is like a billion-dollar investment. Um, let me tell you what I think the biggest challenges are going to be here. Uh, number one, energy. Okay, Number one is energy. I think the best way to power something like this would be with nuclear energy. Uh, I don't know if the international community would allow it to even happen. I, I think that they would send the jet fighters in before they would let somebody build even a, a nuclear power you know, style generator. Um, I think it would be the biggest thing would put them on the radar. I don't think it should happen. I think they should be able to do it. I mean, if they're not building, I mean, there's a big difference between building a nuclear reactor for energy and a nuclear bomb. It's a huge difference. In fact, there's some stuff that's practically off the shelf for it that's very, very expensive. But my concern is that the energy issue, uh, is is maybe too great. Now, they could do a lot with wind, they could do a lot with solar, and they could do a lot with, um, uh, what do they call it, wave energy. Now, wave energy is you take a big tank and you put a, a fluid solution in it that suspends one fluid's heavier than the other, and you just let that tank float in the ocean, and as the waves move it up and down, it generates electricity. So maybe outside of uh, nuclear energy, they could you know light lights and do everything like that, the problem is one of the biggest needs you're going to have is fresh water, and it's very energy intensive to convert seawater to fresh, and very very expensive and energy intensive to, to boat fresh water in. So they have to find a way to desalinate ocean water and provide energy 
without a nuclear reactor. That's the huge hurdle. The next thing is anything that stays in the ocean corrodes. So as you built this thing, it would be constantly being rebuilt underneath because uh, the salt air is very corrosive. If there, you know, if this was a, if, if we had freshwater oceans, this would be a lot, this would be easy to do. Somebody would have done it a long time ago. Um, because the energy, if we can get water, we can solve the energy problem one way or another. Maybe we just don't have as much energy as we're accustomed to in, in, you know, the onshore world. But, um, I don't know. I think this is a great idea, but we'll have to see if it can happen. I don't think that it can't happen for some of the reasons that, that doubt, you know, people doubt feel of, like people just can't live as libertarians, like that's impossible. Uh, I think that's completely possible. The whole point of why they're doing this, though, is because they basically said, we have nowhere else to go. You guys have ruined everything. You know, I don't listen to talk radio much, contrary to a few of the uh, global warming uh, religious cult-like people uh, think that I've been co-opted by right-wing radio. I very rarely listen to radio anymore because I only drive 10 minutes to the office and back to my place, basically. Maybe it's 15. And I usually have my thoughts to myself on that short drive. And uh, otherwise, I'm, I'm running my own company, running my own show. I don't have time to listen to these people. But I ended up in the car somewhere. I think it was Saturday. And they were rebroadcasting Rush Limbaugh. And he was talking about this. And he read the part that I read to you about, you know, no loser welfare, no loser regulations, whatever. And he says, so they're running away from Democrats, right? He says, I know they're going to say they're running away from Republicans too. And you think you are, but you're not. You're just running away from... No, Rush, they're running away from government. Okay? It doesn't matter if you have an R or a D after. If these people are trying to get away from government, uh, I hope they do well. But I have real concerns for them. On the note of concerns, we talked a lot recently about um, the new the new big investment, which is timberland and agricultural land. And of course, Rogers, uh, Jim Rogers, has been pushing that really heavily, which always makes me worry that whenever they push something heavily, they drive it up so on the other side they can short it, and we can all take the beating on the way down. And I said one of my big concerns with timberland and, and, and agricultural land is eventually if this gets hot enough, they'll spin that into uh, like, a, like an ETF, an exchange-traded fund or a mutual fund that buys agricultural real estate or something like that. And uh, as they do that, that will make it more for the mass market. This isn't quite that, but it very clearly illustrates how what I'm predicting will come to pass for agricultural and timberlands. And there's probably uh, already... No, probably nothing. There are ETFs for timber. Uh, and there's agricultural ETFs. I don't know if there's one that invests in agricultural land, but you can do ETFs in cattle, cocoa, coffee, corn, cotton, hogs, soybeans. I mean, you name it, there's ETFs for it. And there's, you know, corn. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. And th I think this will illustrate for you the dangers when things get to be hot and spun together in these vehicles. Uh, let me read it to you. This comes from the Growth Stock Wire, which is uh, from Stansbury Research. And as you guys know, I'm not a big fan of Porter Stansbury, but I do think that they put out some good information. It's it's the other end of the thing where they use fear and, and uncertainty and doubt to sell you investment advice about an economy that's going to fall apart and how you can become rich off of it. I think that's bullshit. Uh, but I do agree completely with this assessment here. And it's not Stansbury himself. It's this guy, Matt uh, Badali, who I think is pretty spot on here. You listen and tell me what you think. 
There's a frenzy in the corn market. A combination of ethanol demand, inflation, and poor weather has lifted corn prices to new heights. Recently, the drought in the U.S. Farm Belt and a shortage in Mexico have pushed the golden grain even higher. The price is up 131% in two years. Until June of 2010, only commodity traders could, legal, could directly invest in corn. Some funds keep a portion of their assets in corn, but there were no pure play corn funds. However, with a massive rally creating demand for mom and pop investors, and that's always when it happens, that's always when people get burned, when mom and pop get in, the market couldn't resist creating a new fund for these folks. Corn. It's a fund called C-O-R-N. Uh, all capital letters managed by to, to, uh, Terkumian Funds, a new company founded specifically to create commodity funds. I'm a long-term term agricultural bull, but the potential demand for emerging markets like India and China is stupendous, but I'm not buying corn and here's why. As you would expect, the fund doesn't actually buy and sell corn kernels. Instead, it uses futures contracts and its strategies. Corn's managers buy those futures contracts in an attempt to match within 10% the performance of the actual price of real corn. Since its inception, corn is up 90%, outpacing corn spot prices. Take a look. And if you looked at the graph, they, the graphs are almost identical except uh, in September to November, somewhere in there of 2010, the numbers decoupled and corn went up by about 10%. They were spot on for the first six months until they got things ramped up and enough investors and figured it out. And then they just stay about 10% higher than actual corn all the way through it. It almost is a, a mirror line. Uh, but let me read this to you. If you hold chairs in corn, you've got to be patting yourself on the back right now, but there's a problem here. I spoke with a former commodity trader about corn. He told me this kind of fund is a sitting duck for professional traders. The fund has to roll its futures contracts over. Basically, it means that on a set day, it needs to sell the old contracts and buy new ones, trading about 35% of its assets each time. So every so often, it has to take old contracts that are expiring and sell them and buy new contracts, okay? The fund is like a poker player with his hand showing and his next bit bet written on his forehead. According to my friend, a fund locked into a predictable system will bleed 1% or so on every roll. Corn has to roll five times a year according to its system. That kind of capital erosion will hurt shareholders, particularly when prices are falling or sideways. And I'll let you read the rest if you want. I'll look. It comes to me in a newsletter, but I'll look it up and give you a direct link. Here's what they're basically saying. These speculators with oil that screw with the oil price and speculate in the silver market and all, with this, you know exactly how much the contracts are, when they expire, when they're going to be renewed, and how much they're going to be renewed for. So a block of commodity uh, speculators can get together and just rape this fund. And this is just one example, and that's something I think as we move... Now, here's the thing. These are ETFs, exchange-traded funds, that are directly tied to the commodity. And like I said, there's timber land funds that do this. There's probably agricultural land funds that are into ETFs already, instead of just the commodities into the land side of things. When people are really going to like go crazy over this, is they're going to put it together into a more direct type of a mutual fund. That, 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 like, it's basically a mutual fund that holds agricultural real estate, that leases it out to farmers, stuff like that. And when the money pours in beyond the land's value, man, 
That's where I think people are going to get hurt. So that's why I think that your play in, in agricultural land and timber land today is to own it. And I don't care if all you can afford is five acres. Well, all you can afford to buy is five acres worth of a fund anyway. At least you own the land, and the land has a certain underlying value, and it's not subject to somebody else screwing with it on you. Um, so I, I really think that land is the future investment. It's going to be the thing that most people are looking for because it can produce for you. But I think I would be very, very careful if you go in any of these paper vehicles for land and agricultural products. And I would definitely set up a stop loss, and I would chase your stop loss up. I'm getting into technical terms here, but it's very simple. If I bought into this corn thing today, I'd say if this thing falls 20%, sell. And, I'd, and if it went up 10%, I'd move my stop loss up to match and still stay 20 under. And if it went up another 10%, I'd move it up to where if it came down to its original buy price, I'm going to dump it. And, I, and as, as it keeps going, I'm going to keep chasing it with a stop loss. And if it gets to where it's really in the money, let's say I'm 30 to 40, 40% in the money on this thing, I'm going to have my stop loss now sitting at about 15%, maybe even 10%. I might even be at that point selling half and pushing the stop loss up to like 5%. So you've got to be very careful with these things. If you don't, you really can get burned very, very hard because, again, when these funds are doing this with contracts and they know exactly, and these other traders know when and where, especially in sideways markets, that's when manipulators start just ping-ponging up and down, up and down, up and down, and eroding one to two points off your trade. It might be over your head. Just understand that that's how it's going to happen, and, and that's why if you go into these things, be very, very careful. Um, next question, totally unrelated to money at all, totally different thing. Uh, from Nate, Nate says, please help me figure out why my tomatoes aren't doing well. I'm growing tomatoes in containers outside my apartment. The plants are tall and appear healthy, but the flowers turn brown and fall off. Some of the lower leaves turn yellow and wither off as well. I'm in Southern California, and they are being adequately watered with automatic drip systems. They're on a south-facing wall, get full sun most of the day. Thanks for your help, Nate. It's probably because, let's see, you sent them to me in mid-August, and it's hot as blazes out, and when it gets too hot, tomatoes stop bearing. The yellow leaves are most likely blight, and since it's only a couple of them on the bottom, they're probably uh, like a late blight or something, and it's probably not going to be enough to take your plants out or be that concerned about. I would trim off any leaves that get yellow, trim them right off at the stalk immediately to help control that, uh, keep watering them, and uh, you'll probably be just fine as soon as the temperatures drop just a little bit. Couple things you can do to help though is make sure you're, you know, since they're in buckets and containers uh, and you're using a, a, a potting mix, it's very, very possible uh, that you are deficient in calcium and that's going to hurt you with not just fruit setting, but it's going to also hurt you when fruit sets with something called blossom end rot. Uh, long term, you know, control, you know, adding calcium, crust eggshells, uh, crust oyster shells, a good way to go. For container plants, though, for a quick to make sure you're there, uh, you might just want to get some good supplemental calcium pellets that you can water straight in, and we'll start to get some calcium to those plants right away. That should give you a good yield as soon as the temps drop. Let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, next one's something I talk about occasionally because it, you know, I. Let me just read the question, and then I'll, I'll give you my thoughts. Um, but I do answer it because I get the question in different versions so often. If you've heard it before, I, I, I know. But we got remember, we got new listeners all the time. Jack, I just discovered your podcast a few weeks ago, and I love listening to the interviews. I download them into my MP3 player and listen to them all night at work. A question for you, and I'm sure someone has asked you this already. I'm currently reading Patriots by James W. Rawls, a great book. My question is for you is this. Do you think the level of social breakdown that Rawls describes in his book would take place following a major economic collapse as the book describes? 
Basically, everything in his book revolves around complete social disruption taking place, following a collapse of the dollar, a worldwide depression. Just wondering your take on this. Thanks so much for all you do, uh, Steve. Uh, we'll just leave it at Steve from Georgia. Um, I, let me put it to you this way: No, all right. I mean, that's the blanket answer. No, the the book goes to a level of ridiculousness. Um, that exists solely for the purpose of showing every possible scenario that could ever occur in any kind of a, of a, a downspin of the entire global world. And economic collapse was just a plausible scenario to lead into that downward spiral that the author used to create this literary allegory slash um, technical manual. Because that's what it really is. is a technical manual written as a novel. Because the way the characters speak... If you tried to read it as pure fiction, it just as a good fictional read, it's ridiculous, right? You don't describe how your girlfriend got shot uh, and give model numbers of the guns that were used in the fight uh, when you're telling your friends who are operating on your girlfriend what happened in the fight. You just don't do that. It's just, it's just ridiculous that anybody would ever talk that way. And you know, each conversation has all these part numbers, model numbers, and stuff like that in it. So it was designed to make that type of information uh, easier to read. Because if you just wrote a, ma a technical manual like that, it would be very tough to read. So Rawls, being a, a reasonably good author, took this stuff and put it into a story. And that would just happen to be the scenario he used. If you read his own blog from time to time, he does delve deeper into the the tactical world that I think makes sense for most people. I think that he's uh, uh, kind of more on the road warrior end of things than I am, but I think we agree on 80% or more of the material. And when you actually read his blog posts about economic collapse, you find that he discusses it much more in a slow downward spiral than a complete, you know, s abrupt smash and Things being much more like they were in Russia, or were in Argentina, or were here during the Great Depression. It's not, you know the, the the concept that Belgians are going to come over here and chemically gas us because they're mad that they're not getting their freaking you know loans repaid and want to reclaim. It's just it's just dumb. Okay, it's just absolutely phenomenally stupid uh, that that it could ever actually happen that way. But I'm not putting down Rawls and I'm not putting down his book. I'm just saying, read it for what it is. Don't read it and, and see it as a prophecy of things to come. Because I don't, unless unless he said this on record, and I don't think he has. I don't think it was ever meant that way. I think it was meant to be an educational novel that went into like a doomer porn level of like let's just go nuts with it and see what would happen. Now, could society ever break down to that level? Maybe, but probably not even that. Uh, you know, and the concept of like a couple guys running around in the, the Northwest militia fighting off. I mean, please read the book for what it is. Interesting fiction with a lot of good concrete prepper concepts bundled into it. But it's about as realistic as most sci-fi novels in it ever going down that way. Okay? Um, if you think you're going to provide air support to, to ground militia troops with an ultralight aircraft with modified AR-15s to fire fully automatic strapped to the wings, you're just woo, out there. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. And I think Rawls, as a former Army intelligence officer, knows that. He just wove an interesting story. So I don't think that should be your manual for what to expect in the future. 
Hopefully nobody that likes Rawls is pissed off now. You ask my opinion, and many people ask, so there's my answer. Next question from Tim. Jack, first let me say thanks to a really dangerous man. Your knowledge and passion is refreshing in, general, in a generally sleeping world. I recently discovered your show, and I'm digesting uh, this for about a day. And uh, my question is concerning the use of hula culture beds as terraces in a planned small food forest. I have an area on my farm normally used uh, to plant spring corn and fall legumes. There is a field of approximately 1.5 acres with moderate slope. What do you think of laying down tree-length logs on contour to build hula culture beds? I have equipment and hardwood logs and volume to do this. You have given me some great ideas on varieties to plant And I'm still trying to figure out all this permaculture stuff. The wife and I have been gardening and storing food for years. We can plant monocrop rows so straight you would not believe it. We've had to change our, we will have to change our wicked ways. Thanks for all you do. We are debt free and have been prepping since prepping wasn't cool. You have inspired us to kick it up a bit to a higher level. Never back off. What you're doing is too important. Thanks, Tim in Mississippi. Okay, Tim. Um, I, I have some interesting things to, to, to point out to you today. Your trees generally in what you're describing, and what you're describing is kind of taking swales and hugel culture and putting them together. The trees generally are not so much straight in the berms. They're either on the downside or the upside. You take your trees that are more drought tolerant and they're on the uphill side, and you take your trees that are less drought tolerant, you put them on the downhill side. And normally the layout you're describing would be done as a swale. And remember, hugel culture with me is about six months uh, in, I'm into my, my knowledge research and application of hugel culture. So, I think more along swales for a food forest because that's how Jeff Lott and Bill Mollis, that's how these guys do it. Now, combining the two, I think, has a lot of potential. My belief is the best way to do this would be line out your contours where you're going to have your contours. Put in swales with level sills that allow the water to overflow and go down to the next level. You might even backfill a few of your sills into some ponds. Um, the best book I can or best resource I can recommend for really understanding how this looks and how this works is a DVD from the Permaculture Institute called Harvesting Water the Permaculture Way. I think it's like 30 bucks if you're going to do this. I would get that DVD and I would watch it and then I would incorporate this on top of what I'm about to tell you now. Laying the logs out and then piling the dirt over top of them and make a hugel culture bed sounds like a great idea. And if you do that, you're going to have to get the dirt from somewhere. So if you get it from right behind the logs, now you have a level ditch. So now you have a swale, you have a mound, and you have a hula culture mound. I'm digging this idea. I'm also thinking that maybe what you do is you dig your ditch twice the width you need, lay your logs on the downhill side of the ditch and put the dirt on it, but I don't know how practical that is and how well it will really work. You may be much better off just laying your logs on contour, digging the ditch behind it, and heaping it up. I think that will work phenomenally. Here's what you're going to have to do, though. You're going to have to, when you do that, that big berm of loose soil is going to not really have a lot going for it to hold it together, and it's not going to have a lot of nitrogen. It's had standard agricultural practices on it. You're going to have to plant the butt out of legumes. Right, um, you know, cow pea, winter pea, depending on the season, and just massive amount of cover crop on there, building up organic matter, mulching it down. And some of your trees, maybe you're planting right into those berms, but more of your trees you're planting just in front of those berms. What you're trying to do here is, as the water comes into that ditch, 
It's going to saturate the, the burn. It's going to saturate your logs. It's going to saturate everything. And there's still going to be more water than you can handle. And then that water begins to flow through the earth. Instead of across the earth, it flows through. Now, where do you think it goes faster? If it's flowing across the surface or through underneath? Well, obviously, it goes slower through and underneath. And you literally can hydrate the land. And then you can plant your food forest through there, go into multiple layers. I would really recommend that you get some more foundational knowledge about permaculture. Listen to some of my shows on food forests and layers and things like that. And don't see it just as trees. It's trees. It's climbers. Some point you're going to come out of the trees into a herbaceous layer. Um, and you're going to, you're going to like stack in time and stack in space to do this right. So stacking in time, for instance, you can grow all kinds of short duration crops in those burns. Blackberries, raspberries, you know, things that are going to be two, three, four years uh, into heavy production. Uh, and, and then as the trees come up and canopy out, some of them will go into decline. But that's okay because they've produced for you in the meantime. You can plant a lot of your standard agricultural crops in these berms as they're growing and as the trees are coming. So what I'm saying is you don't plant like a, a thousand trees and then, okay, go, well, in 10 years we'll have stuff. You can time stack annuals, perennials, um, herbaceous plants, and trees all in the same system so that by the time the trees have come to real fruition, canopied out, you've got your sub uh, canopy, your high canopy, your herbaceous layers going crazy out in front of all of that, all of your edges into full-blown pr production, your trees are into heavy production, but you've been able to take production out of that system waiting for the trees to come because otherwise... You go broke waiting for your trees to come to fruition. You're looking at, you know, five years at best for real production from trees. So that's kind of the way that I would take it. But the idea of logs incorporated with swales uh, and berms on contour, I think is fabulous. I have to get maybe Paul Wheaton back on to talk about that. But uh, I bet you if you send him an email, paul at richsoil.com, uh, and tell him that I sent you, and this is just, don't everybody do that, right? Just, uh, just Tim here, uh, and say, you know, listen to this section of the Survival Podcast and House Jack's advice. I'll even email him for you and say, hey, Paul, check this out. What do you think? And ask him if he's ever seen it done that way. What Sepp Holzer does is more terracing. So he terraces and then builds a hookah culture bed. But I, again, I think he's doing his trees more to one side or the other of the beds, and it's more shrubs and vegetables in the beds themselves. But Holzer's building a bed six feet tall. Um, you might want to look up Permaculture Magazine and get uh, this month's issue of it. Uh, there's a real good diagram in there. If I can find it online, I'll link to it, but I don't think it's online. I, I think that's as much as I can give you on that one in a, in a short answer like this. Uh, but we'll do more on permaculture this week uh, because I think it's a topic that everybody needs to, to, to really realize. It's like no matter how much I give you, you're going to need to learn more on your own and apply it to your own situation. But the more I can get you excited about it, the better. Um, next one says... Uh, Doesn't sound too easy, but possible, and maybe a great choice for some. Personally, I've got some weird Jones to green the desert. And uh, there's a little link here. I won't go deep into this on the air, but basically it's still possible to get some desert land for free. There's a lot of crap you got to go through with the government to do it. But let me read you the top part just so you can understand what's available. Some people don't believe there's any desert land still available for free. They're wrong. There's still some available. Certain restrictions do apply. Uh, for example, you must be a resident in one of these states where desert land is still available. Arizona, Nevada, California, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, New Mexico, North Dakota, South Dakota, Utah, Washington, or Wyoming. 
No state residency is required in the state of Nevada. So even if you don't live in Nevada, you could get some land in Nevada. The Desert Land Act was passed specifically to encourage the economic development of arid and semi-arid public lands of the western United States. You may apply for one or more tracts of land totaling no more than 320 acres. Individuals may apply for desert land entry to reclaim, irrigate, cultivate arid and semi-arid public lands. Now, if you read the rest of it, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot. You have to submit a plan. Uh, you have to be selected. But apparently, you can get some free desert land if you want to. My take on this, though, there's if you want desert land, there's a lot of junk desert land available for a few thousand bucks. There's you know you can get by ten acres for two or three thousand dollars out in the West Texas desert. Um, just understand what you're doing and how much work you're going to have to do. But I just think before I would be in in, in hawk to the government for for all this crap that I have to provide them and 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 may make certain investments and lose out on it. I, I think I would go out and buy a piece and just say it's mine, go away. And obviously, you're going to pay almost no property taxes in a situation like that. So, But I will put a link today for those that want to uh, check it out. Uh, next one comes from uh, Let Me Be Free, Jason. Uh, but that's his uh, email handle, Let Me Be Free. I like that. Uh, in a show with Tom Coates, he stated that a default is coming. Prior to about two years ago, I was one of the good little sheeple and heavily invested in a 4013B. So, uh, Jason, you're a teacher. Thanks for teaching our kids. That's what I figure since it's a 4013B or you work in school administration or something like that. I have several hundred thousand there and I don't want to see the relative value be reduced by 50 to 75%. What, when do I just say the heck with it and take 40% penalty and buy a better store of value than having all of those dollars? I'm in my mid-30s and I've always been told you got to max out the 4013B by all of my elders that I thought had it figured out. These are the same people that told me housing prices will never go down and everyone should go to college. Reminds me of when I was a kid. I thought I'd have a life figured out when I was 18. Chuckle Jason. Uh, before I read that, I want to read somebody else's similar question and do them together. Uh, Jack, I'll profess this request. By for advice by saying I know you're not a financial advisor. That said, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are given the problem of my opinion uh, currency crisis. If you if you think that it makes sense to cash in all or part of my IRA to purchase land, I have 170k in an IRA, which would net just over 100k after taxes and penalties. I want the first person to listen to those numbers. Okay, let me be free, uh, Jason. Listen to those numbers. 170k in an IRA, which would net just over 100k after taxes and penalties. That is, uh, that's a lot. Think about it. When you say 40%, it doesn't sound as bad as, as what you just heard there, those numbers. We have some cash savings, some precious metals, my wife's IRA, and no other debt beyond the house. I'm young, uh, 37, married, have two kids, six and four. We owe 237,000 on our suburban house near Austin. Ouch. We are aggressively trying to pay off our mortgage early. Currently on track to have it paid off in a little more than six years. Good to go. I would like to purchase some land to serve as a bug-out location near-term and retirement location long-term. However, because we are devoting so much of our income to paying the debt off, we do not have the extra to devote towards the land. My thoughts, given the economic uncertainty, does it make sense to tap my RA? I would enjoy hearing your thoughts on air or via email if you have the opportunity. Dan. Let me say this to you guys right now. I want you, everybody out there with a 401k thinking it about cashing it in to do something for me. I want you to pause. I want you to take like five deep breaths. And I want you to realize there's some things in our control and some things out of our control. And there's only so much we can do to mitigate that. The first person says, I don't want to see the money devalued. Okay. Unless you're going to put it somewhere where it's not going to be devalued. It gets devalued in or it gets devalued out. 
you're going to be devaluing it by 40% by taking it now versus taking it later. All right? So that devaluation is going to happen the day you take the money out. All right? Now, if you absolutely know what you're going to do with the money and you take the money out with penalty to do that and that has a part of a plan for your life, fine. Here's what I'm going to suggest to both of you right now. Because of the way you're feeling, and this, again, I'm not a financial advisor, and if you, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be upset with me if it doesn't work out for you, you need to talk to your financial advisor about this before you do it. But this is what I would do if I were either one of you. Cease contributions immediately. Cease contributions. Leave the money sit for right now, unless you absolutely know what and where and why you're gonna do with it. Begin making contributions to a, uh, to a savings account, to something liquid. The same amount of money you've been putting there, put somewhere else. The money's there. It's not going to be obliterated overnight. If you're really concerned, move it into the safest investments within the vehicle you can. If you guys have left a job or anything like that and you can, get it into an IRA, roll it out, roll it into an IRA with no penalties. If you decide to start contributing in a retirement-style account again, begin doing it in a Roth versus a conventional. That way, at least you'll be able to get the principal out without penalty in the future. And, and, and just calm down. All right, that's that's the first step. Now, if again, if you know what you're going to buy when and how and how it fits into your long-term plan and you say the hell with it, I'll take the hit and you're doing that fully open eyes, fine. Don't just do it and put the money somewhere and go, "Okay, now it's there and I feel better." Because if it's still just money and if the currency gets devalued, it still gets devalued. I don't care what you buy, if it's denominated in dollars and the dollar takes a bath, then their value of that goes down. And to, a, to, a, to some extent, that even includes real estate. I believe that real estate values are going to come down short term into this next mess. It's going to look like a bloodbath compared to what happened last time. It's the long-term play that real estate's there for. It's the long-term return of what the land can produce for you. It's the long-term value of something that is that's steady. But there's going to be all this turmoil in there. So watch for the opportunity. Start saving the money somewhere else. But don't take money out of a 401k unless you know exactly what you're going to do with it the day you take it out. Unless it's for something like an emergency, like I lost my job, I have no way to pay my mortgage, but if I liquidate my 401k or a portion of my 401k, I can pay my mortgage for the next three years. I would rather not lose my house than worry about you know emptying out a small 401, you know twenty, thirty thousand dollar 401k. I, that makes sense to me. And just borrow the money from yourself. You'll never pay it back. You'll never be able to pay it back. You're screwed. That's why you're doing it in the first place. Take the money, take the hit, do it. These other situations, you have to make your own choice, dude. I'm not Yoda. You know, the first time I ever heard a guy say that was Gary Vanderchuk, and I'm like, oh, thank you, Gary. That's why it was worth the whole interview with him, just because I like now I have an answer when people ask me stuff like this. I'm not Yoda. Uh, I can tell you this: while I see a currency rebasing coming, it's 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 not tomorrow. Take time and figure out what you're going to do before you take any drastic actions. If you know why you're doing what you're doing and it's what you want, go ahead. Uh, next email comes in, real quick one here, just says, I'm sure I won't be the only one to send this to you, but here it is anyway. Obama appoints Monsanto vice president as senior advisor to the commissioner at the FDA. Uh, and there's a link to the story. I'm not going to read it to you. Um, 
I'll just give you the email link if you want to, or the what, the link to the uh, to the article if you want to read it. But here's what I wanted to say about it: um, all politicians are full of shit. Okay, P- plain and simple. And we already know that. But you know, the Obamas have this thing. You know, Michelle's out trying to put down. You know, we shouldn't be going to McDonald's anymore, and she's growing a garden in the, in the White House backyard. And it's all about the healthy food movement, and yada yada yada. And who does who does the ass clown appoint to a senior advisory position in the FDA? Pfft. Monsanto VP. Now, here I'm going to be be fair to the ass clown. Every president. Every president since Monsanto's been in ag has been doing the same type of thing. This isn't unique to Obama. He hasn't done anything uh, here that's more uh, evil than what Bush, Bush's daddy, Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, all of these guys. This goes back to the Reagan presidency, the first Bush vice presidency, when Monsanto really started coming up in the GMOs. And from that day forward, is, is and Vice President Bush made the first big deregulation deal with Monsanto in the GMO and ag world. And since then, the Department of Agriculture and the FDA has been a revolving door for Monsanto employees. They work for Monsanto, they go work for the government, they go back to Monsanto, they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, this is part of why the problem is so insidious. Just thought I'd bring up a little bit of the hypocrisy, though, so the next time you hear Michelle telling you how you have to eat healthier, uh, remember that, that uh, her husband just appointed a guy who thinks it's healthy for you to eat corn that's been sprayed with a herbicide and soybeans that have been sprayed with a herbicide that have been taken up into a plant and there's no way to wash them off and have been conclusively proven to cause liver and kidney damage when fed to rats. That That's, that's what's considered healthy eating now. All right, next one. Um, this comes from Ben. Uh, ben says, I was just sat down with my representative. We had a chat about the Second Amendment and some of the issues that need to be addressed. At the end of our conversation, she asked me another question that threw me since I wasn't well versed in it. She said, what do you think of ending corporate income tax? I told her I didn't know and I would have to check into it before I gave her an answer. I'm looking into it now for a basic overview and I'll delve into it a bit deeper myself. But could you give me any thoughts you have on it, any particular sources uh, I could look into and also would help? Let me tell you how I think about this. Um, taxing corporations is actually the constitutional income tax. Now, I'm not a corporate enemy. I don't think we should just tax the hell out of corporations. But I would have told your rep, I think we should be damn sure looking at repealing individual income tax before we even talk about this. Now, would I be for getting rid of corporate and personal income tax both? Absolutely. The government gets enough tax dollars from all the other ways they steal it. Um, if you said to me, Jack, how would you fix the tax system? Well, the first thing I would do is cut Medicare and Medicaid by about 30%, block grant the money to the states, tell them to fix it, and sort it out. That would, that would help a lot. Social Security, I would freeze, and I would create an elimination plan for Social Security. People of a certain age would get everything. People of a next age would, would, would kind of phase the program out. The longer you've been dependent upon and contributing to it, the bigger the piece that you'll get on your retirement years. I wouldn't take it away from a single old person on it now, but I would freeze it, no more raises, and I would get rid of that. Then I would get the government out of the 80% of things that it's doing that it doesn't need to be doing, and I'd say see to our defense, see to our international trade, and see to our commerce, and see to our highway systems. And I would say to do that, you get a 7 to 10% uh, national uh, sales tax. It can go lower. It cannot go higher. I'd pass a constitutional amendment for it, and I would lock it at 10%. It can go no higher than 10%, and if the government wanted more money, I'd say make the economy better, ass clowns, and you'll have more money. 
and they still have all their other taxes and fees, right? But eliminating corporate income tax, what purpose is there to that if we don't eliminate personal income tax? All that that would do is actually, it could be good in a way, because hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people would go the self-employed route, file their own little corporation, and do as an S-corp or an LLC and work as a corp. But see, at some point, they have to take the money out of the corp, and when they pay themselves, they're going to pay taxes on it. So the reasoning for this, let's just be the devil's advocate here. The reasoning for this is because what a astute economist will tell you is corporations don't really pay taxes. Corporations pass the cost of everything on the consumers, and that means you're paying the tax in the price of the good. So if I sell you a can of Java Monster coffee drink that my wife just brought me when she came in the office today for $2.49 from my convenience store, I made a profit as the convenience store person, and the manufacturer made a profit, and so did the distributor. And all along the way, there were profits, and those profits are taxed at a corporate level, and then when those corporations pay employees, the employees then pay personal tax. But the theory is, anyway, that if I was selling this for $2.49, and there were no taxes at any of the corporate level, maybe it would cost a dollar and ninety-nine cents. And then the individuals would still pay their taxes, but the cost of the item purchased would be lower. But here's the reality that trumps that. This is the other side of the economic argument there. Yes, it's true that corporations will not pay taxes to a degree. But corporations, if they're smart, set their price as high as they possibly can to make as much profit as they possibly can. Because that's what they're in business to do. So if the market will bear $249 and they're not taxed, they'll still sell it for $249. Back to the other side of the argument. And this is how you have to think. See, and this is why I'm doing this today. Because politicians always give you one side of the argument uh, so that you'll gravitate to one side or the other and stay in a class warfare. Well, here's the other side of that argument. Going back to the other side of it. That's true until, you know, somebody competes with Java Monster and there's 500 other people out there doing coffee drinks, Starbucks and, and a bunch of other ones. And if they sell for $199 to beat Java Monster out, then Java Monster has to bring their price down or make a product that's so much better that people will pay a premium for it. So when you look at it all, it's just a big giant mess. And the reality is that Having corporations pay a tax is not necessarily good nor evil. The problem is how much taxes are paid and what do they do with their money and how much they spend beyond the taxation. That's, that's really what it all comes down to. So to me, the way that you fix this is you stop taxing production for everybody. Right now you're punished. The more productive you are, the more you pay. If you go from $30,000 to $50,000, not only do you pay more because you have more to pay taxes on, you pay a higher percentage because you're wealthier in the eyes of the ass clowns that made the laws. There are certain breaks like between thirty and 50000 where when you look at the way that it affects taxes, you only get like maybe 30% of your raise. It's so de-incentivizing. So if you tax spending then it's incumbent upon the government to promote the general welfare instead of provide the general welfare. You know, I want you to think about what the Constitution says. Two very important lines in the Constitution that people overlook. It says to provide for the common defense. That means the government shall provide a common defense. It does not say provide for the general welfare. It says promote. 
So you promote things by removing obstacles, not by putting obstacles in place. You provide by doing. You promote more by what you don't do. So just my thoughts on that question. I know it's not really a survival topic, but it is because all of this is really about liberty and the more tax they take from us, the more liberty they can take away from us. That's how it works. Taxes and liberty go hand in hand. The more tax, the less liberty. The less tax, the more liberty. Plain and simple, no way to argue around it, no matter what your politics are. A government can only regulate what it can afford to enforce. So if we increase government revenues, like they keep, we need to, we need more revenues. We need more revenues. You know what that means? You need to have less freedom. That's what it really means. That's what more revenue, it's not about paying the freaking debt off. They're not going to pay the freaking debt off. If you gave these ass clowns a trillion dollars every year more, if you grew the, the revenues by a trillion dollars tomorrow, Right, so we went from 1.1 trillion to 2.1 trillion in revenues. Tomorrow morning, they would find a way to spend that extra trillion and our deficit would stay the same or get bigger. We gotta pull it back from everybody. Don't ever be deceived by a politician saying, well, corporate tax. We should repeal corporate tax. We should repeal individual tax. No. We should stop taxing productivity and start taxing spending. That would encourage savings. That would encourage smart buying. And it would give the government enough to do the few things that it's actually supposed to be doing at the federal level. It certainly would pay for a national defense uh, that would be still unrivaled in the world if we didn't try to have a military presence in 120 countries and tell other people how to run their nations. Just my thought. Next one up uh, it says, This will make your life easier. And I believe that sarcasm comes from Donna. Cashless parking, windshield microtrip to make it easier. Basically, it's an article. I'll let you read it yourself. But there's this new RFID. They take a little sticker. You put it on your window. And when you pull into the parking garage, it knows you pulled in. When you leave, it knows you left. It charges your card. You don't have to deal with paying every time you go in and out of the parking garage. Hmm, where have we heard this before? I think we heard it from Jack, and he said that the states would put it in your registration sticker on your vehicle, and when you drove down the road, you'd get taxed by the mile. So that's just another example of that coming to fruition. And to get you used to it, they'll come up with all these great advantages for you, um, like charging you and raising rates and not telling you that it costs more to park this week than last week, and there's nothing you can do about it because you've already been charged for it, and you park there. And they start tracking everywhere and every place you go. I'm telling you folks, we are headed to be taxed by the mile. Right now, do you know what the next big uh, ruckus is going to be in Washington? The federal gas tax is due to expire. Yes, at the end of September, if they don't reinstate the federal gas tax, the federal tax on gasoline will go away. Well, guess what? There's already calls. There's already calls on this. to Let's change it to a mileage tax. Let's reform it. Let's, let's raise it. Because uh, we need more revenues. It would be a shame if all those tax revenues, there was a trillion dollars a day or a billion dollars a day in tax revenues or something like that I read. Um, I want you to think about this. What would happen to our economy if we let it expire? What would happen if a uh, billion dollars a day stayed in the consumer's pocket versus went into the gas pump? A billion. And don't say, well, the gas can't mean to just raise the price of gas. No, no, no. The gas prices are set. Grass prices are set by consumer demand. Sorry, that's that's one that's actually pretty well controlled by how many people drive, how many gallons they use, uh, how much oil is being produced. The gas is going to sell for whatever the gas is going to sell. But the federal tax just came off the gas. And gas went down 20 cents to much, like 19 cents a gallon tomorrow. And all of that money just stayed in our communities and was spent on other things. What would it do to our economy 
There's your case for cutting taxes everywhere in any way we can. Um, next one uh, comes from Raymond. Raymond says, I've been trying to... I've been trying to things financial. I guess maybe trying to understand. There's a word missing there. Uh, something I've avoided other than paying bills. I'm confused by recession and depression. I know that depression is a non-ending recession. How long must a recession continue for it to become a depression? And do we treat them differently? I don't know. There's a good answer. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ways to answer. Like a, kind of a textbook economics answer would be that a depression is when the real Gross domestic product, not the, the fake one. We look at everything together, goes down by more than 10%. And, and we would see that in the Great Depression. We would see that in two periods of the Great Depression. Actually, there's really two depressions there. And one would be when it initially began. Um, from 1929 till about March of 1933, the real GDP went down by like 33% in the United States. And we're talking 1% or 2% today. All right. So when I tell you guys that like going into a, a depression is far worse than most people can imagine and how this whole romanticizing thing, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression and trying to make you feel like you're going through the same thing your grandfather and great-grandfather went through, it's bullshit. This is what I'm talking about. We have a decline of like a 0.9%, 1% decline, or we only, we only grew by 0.9% and the population grew more than that, so it's really a negative, right? It sucks, and you can see how bad it sucks by looking around, but it's not... Anything like March 19, uh, from August 1929 to March 1933, a 33% drop. There was actually a recovery in the middle of the Great Depression, whether, you, you know, and, and things started to actually look like they were getting better in March of 1933. The economy began to grow again, and then it came into a less severe depression that really lasted from about 1937 through 1938. And since then, we really haven't had anything close to that. The worst we've actually had um, is is not now. So when they say the worst financial crisis is great, not if we're actually measuring GDP from March uh, from November of '73 to March of '75, the GDP, the real GDP, fell by 4.9 percent, and that's worse than we have today. So um, there's kind of one way to look at this. Um, there's a lot of other ways to look at this, though, and, and you have to ask yourself: Does it really matter to you as an individual? Do we, you know, do we treat them differently? Um, well, how do we treat anything? We treat it based on how it affects us individually. So my concern is that we're headed for this big downfall eventually, and the people that that, that are running the show basically know that ain't good for re-election, so they'll try to fix it and they'll make it worse. And um, I, you know, maybe there's your answer. That's, that's the basic way that you know the difference. The depression from a pure economic standpoint is a, a massive decline in domestic production. It's not that a recession lasts really long that turns it into a depression. It's how far down it goes. Up until, um, you know, the 1930s, everything when it was a down, everything was a depression. That's what they called it. It was, you know, there was one in 1913, there was one in 1909 or 1907 or something like that. There was one in 1919, and they were all called depressions. And then when the Great Depression hit, they're like, oh, this is what a depression looks like. Good job, Federal Reserve. We got to call this a depression. What do we call these other little momentary lapses? We'll call those recessions. So that's where the whole thing came from. Um, What we're you know seeing now is kind of this like 70s style stagflation, this sideways moving economy that just can't get going. 
Um, but what do we do? We, we do the things we're supposed to do. That's, that's what we do. And we don't worry so much about the economic terms for this stuff, but hopefully you understand it better now. Uh, this is one that I, I think everybody should read this article. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, um, but I want to make you aware of it. Uh, a 13-year-old 7th grader from the state of New York uh, looked at something called, that we, most of you guys have probably heard of, the Fibonacci sequence, which is nature's version of perfection. And Fibonacci sequences uh, are, what you do is when you're counting uh, uh, in a numerical sequence, uh, you're looking at uh, the numbers. You start with 0 and 1. And then you add the last two numbers in the series together, and the sum became the next number in the sequence. Uh, the number sequence started to is, you know, looks like this: one, one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen, twenty-one, thirty-four. Now, what's interesting is this sequence, like Fibonacci, the guy that came up with it, noticed it when he was like, you know, counting rabbits being born or whatever, but. It's in all things, and it's in trees. Trees come out from a single, and they fork to two, and then they fork to three, and then they fork to five in the branches. And there's a limit to how far they can go, but trees are basically the Fibonacci sequence in action. Well, this kid, and, and you can read the whole article to get the, to get more on it, but this kid basically said, okay, and you're going you're gonna to have to smack yourself in the forehead if you haven't read this already and go... Duh, why didn't we think about this? This kid said, okay, so we take solar panels and we put them in this flat array and we just point them at the sun and maybe we tilt them toward the sun. But nature's solar panel is a leaf. That's what a leaf is. It's a solar panel. And this series of numbers that, that represents mathematical perfection exists in the tree. Maybe, just maybe, it's there for a reason. So he ran an experiment where he basically took the so little solar panels and set them up in the pattern of a tree using the Fibonacci sequence, pointing in all different directions the way a tree grows, instead of all trained in one location. He took the same number of panels, and he put them into a flat, typical solar array, and measured the efficiency difference, and guess which one worked better? Well, son of a gun, if the one that was uh, designed like a tree's pattern didn't work better. Just give you some examples of his results. This was very small scale, so the numbers are low, but the the, the percentages are massive in, a, in, a, in an industry where we're trying to eke out an additional one or two percent all the time in every way that we can. Um, he did a test in October, and the standard design solar array produced 4.4 volts. The tree design solar array produced 5.25 volts. And then he did a December winter solstice test. So obviously on the solstice, which would be the shortest day of the year, and wanted to see what happened. Well, the standard array dropped to 4.1. Guess what happened to the tree design? It produced 5.25 volts. It didn't lose anything. We, we need to give this kid a grant and let him get to work. Uh, let me read a little bit. Uh, about, uh, from what this, this kid has to say about this. I began to see how nature beat this problem. Collecting sunlight is key to the survival of a tree. Leaves are the solar panels of trees. Love the kid saying that. I've been saying that for so long, man. I love hearing somebody say that. Collecting sunlight for photosynthesis, collecting the most value, the most sunlight, is the difference between life and death. Trees in a forest are competing with other trees and plants for sunlight. And even each branch and leaf on a tree is competing with each other for sunlight. 
Evolution chose the Fibonacci pattern to help trees track the sun moving in the sky and collect the most sunlight even in the thickest forest. I saw patterns that showed that the tree design avoided the problem of shade and other objects. Electricity dropped in a flat panel array when shade fell on it, but the tree design kept making electricity under the same conditions. The Fibonacci pattern allowed some solar panels to collect sunlight even if others were in shade. Plus, I observed the Fibonacci pattern helped the other branches and leaves on a tree to avoid shading each other. My conclusion suggests that the Fibonacci pattern in trees makes an evolutionary difference. The problem why the Fibonacci pattern is found in deciduous trees living in higher latitudes, this is probably why the Fibonacci pattern is found in deciduous trees living in higher latitudes. The Fibonacci pattern gives the plants like the oak tree a competitive edge while collecting sunlight when the sun moves through the sky. My investigation has created more questions to answer. Why are there different Fibonacci patterns among trees? Uh, is one pattern more efficient than the other? More testing of other types of trees is needed. I am testing different Fibonacci patterns now. I'm improving my tree design model to see if it could be a new way of making panel arrays. My most recent tries with bigger test models were successful. The tree design takes up less room than a flat panel array and works in spots that don't have full southern view. It collects more sunlight in winter, shade, and the bad weather like snow don't hurt it because the panels are not flat. It even looks nicer because it looks like a tree. A design like this may work better in urban areas where space and direct sunlight can be hard to find. But the best part of what I learned was that even in the darkest days of winter, nature is still trying to tell us its secrets. This kid is awesome. I mean, this, this kid should give you hope for our, our future generations. 13 years old, grade 7. Um, I'm not sure what school this kid's going to, but you guys are doing something right because the kid's thinking for himself, or maybe he's just smarter than all his teachers. I don't know, but this is cool. And this is one of those dumb moments. And I was just listening to the DVD presentation, Jeff Lott and Bill Mollison, where they were talking about Fibonacci sequences and how trees can only go so far with it. Eventually, they get to a point where to, to, to break down a second, you know, another time to another layer becomes impossible. They can't go any further, and they've reached their maximum efficiency for a tree. And I think Lott and Mollison would look at what this kid did and smack the V8 smack in the fart and go, why the hell didn't we think of this? Uh, this is absolutely simple. And simply brilliant. So read the whole article. I think that it's something that uh, you guys really would get a lot out of reading the whole thing. Um, next one says, uh, this is more on stocks. This is from the Daily Wealth, which is uh, uh, another email publication that I get uh, about stocks and finance and things like that. I actually like this better than the stuff that comes out of Stansberry. A lot better. This came to me uh, from... Uh, uh, a listener at one time said, uh, check this out. Remember I told you that the stock market should end up this year because we're on an election year? Let me read you another reason the stock market should end up this year. I have good news for you today. I have a little ray of sunshine and all this darkness lately. You could make a lot of money in the next three months based on history. Let me explain. This recent stock market volatility, down 400 points one day, up 400 the next, then down again, has certainly rattled your nerves, not to mention your portfolio. This kind of recent volatility, especially on the heels of similar volatility in 2008 and 2009, is enough to scare off even the toughest investor. The good news is the volatility has finally reached a high enough level where history shows you can make big money from it. The volatility index, or VIX, just hit 44 as I write. 
The VIX is the stock market's fear gauge. The lower the VIX is, the higher investor complacency is, and vice versa. The start shows what happened to the stock prices after the VIX hits 44. You can see that stocks tend to V bottom and then soar. And there's a graph that shows exactly what he's saying. The old phrase is when the VIX is high, it's time to buy. We tested it, and it's true. Specifically, we tested how the stock market performed once the VIX hit today's level of 44 and then fell below it. The results were quite impressive. Three months later, stocks were up 80% of the time. The median return on the S&P was 5%. I realize 9% might not sound like much to you, but remember, that's just three months. Annualized, it's a 36% return, and it's as good as any system around. Granted, we don't have a lot of history to draw from. 25 years might sound like a lot of data, but we haven't had to deal with this kind of volatility that much in our lifetimes. Um, I'm just saying I'm still calling the stock market up in 2011, at the end of 2011, as the ass clown tries to buy his re-election. This is just another supporting factor in that. I'm not telling you to ride it out. I'm not telling you to put your money in. I'm just telling you what I think is going to happen. And I'm telling you something other people don't generally tell you, why I think it's going to happen. Because all the historical indicators tell us that it's going to happen. Um, the next one I have for you is from, who is it from? It is from Donna. And Donna says, uh, this is pretty cool, and points me to a website with a link. And there's the title. German Village produces 321% of its energy needs. And there's a slideshow you can look at, which is pretty cool. But I'll read you the article, a little bit of it anyway. It's no surprise that the country that's kicked butt at the solar decathlon competition to produce energy-positive solar houses years after year is home to such a productive, energy-efficient village. The village's green initiative first started in 1997 when the village council decided it should build new industries, keep initiatives local, and bring in new revenue, and create no debt. Over the past 14 years, the community has equipped nine new community buildings with solar panels, built four biogas digesters uh, with a fifth under construction now, installed seven windmills uh, with two more on the way in the village itself. 190 private households have solar panels, while the district also benefits from three small hydro power plants, ecological flood control, and natural wastewater system. All these green systems mean despite only having a population of 2,600, Uh, Wild Postrid, I, I can't pronounce the name of this city, Wild Poldestride produces 321% more energy than it needs, and it's generating 4 million euros, which is $5.7 million in annual revenue by selling it back to the national grid. It's no surprise to learn that small businesses have developed in the village specifically to provide services to the renewable energy installations. Over the years, the village's green goals have been so successful that they've even crafted a mission statement, WIR 2020, which stands for something I can't say. Uh, but it's an innovative leadership uh, uh, slogan. The Village Council hopes that it will inspire citizens to do their part for the environment, create green jobs and businesses in the local area. As a result of the Village's success, Woolpudstride has received numerous national and international awards for its conservation and renewable energy initiatives. You read the rest if you want to, but my point is, isn't this a better reason to do this and try to save polar bears? Because like their economy's booming, their their city has no debt, they produce more power than they need, they're using all renewable resources, they're not dependent on anybody. Isn't this a better reason to be environmentalist than something the TV tells you or a Walt Disney movie that's been fabricated out of thin air to make you feel guilty about something that's not happening? Uh, this is awesome. Check out what they're doing, and somebody's going to come up and say. 
But there's only 2,900 people. It's a lot harder with a lot of people. And if I told you about a big city doing it, you'd say, well, little cities can't do it. There's always one why. Now, here's what I want to know. And this is why I put these two close together. What would happen if all of the solar power being generated in this, this little town went from being flat solar arrays to Fibonacci sequenced arrays the way that this kid designed? How much further could they go? And this, uh, if you've never seen it, the Solar Decathlon is pretty cool. They have these people from all over the world, quite a few from U.S. institutions. Usually it's in California, and they build a house. It has to be a house you can actually move and transport, and then they test the house and see which house does the most with the least, which is the most energy efficient. You get no grid power at all, and you have to run the whole house. How many, how many of these teams next year are going to be running Fibonacci-sequenced solar panels because a 13-year-old kid was smart enough to look at a tree and go, nature did a better job. Just some thoughts to make you feel good today. Um, next one comes to me from Raymond. Uh, and Raymond says, uh, Jack, you got to see this. And it's a clip from um, uh, KT KATU Communities, which is a local affiliate station in uh, Salem, Oregon. Uh, and it's about the Jan Klein issue. And I think that since so many of you guys went out of your way to help Jan as part of the Survival Podcast community, I think that it is important that you hear it, uh, even though it were only mentioned for about 10 seconds. But uh, I'll put a link to the actual video so you can see it. But I'm going to play the audio for you right now because I want all of you that helped out to feel good about this. And uh, I know it made me feel good. So let's take a listen to this, uh, the uh, news station's update on, uh, on what's gone on with Jan Klein. An unexpected twist in the story we first told you two days ago. It's about a local woman fighting cancer and fighting City Hall because it was trying to stop her garage sales to pay her medical bills. Our story about her went viral on the Internet. K2's Dan Tilkin met with Jan Klein again today. Dan, donations are pouring in from around the country. Right, this story really galvanized people. People are outraged. The city of Salem wouldn't make an exception for Jan. Well, today, I got a pledge from the mayor to help Jan, while strangers already are. This is where the garage sale is set up. When we met Jen Klein on Tuesday, she told us the struggle of her diagnosis. It is a cancer that causes a great deal of pain. It's a bone marrow cancer, and it eats through the bones and causes holes in the bones, so that just by walking I can break a bone. She told us about the garage sale she's been holding, selling her belongings to the house she's staying at in Salem to pay her bills. She told us about the visit from the city, saying she'd reached the limit of three allowed by city ordinance. He goes, I'm sorry, rules are rules. Just and like that. Just like that. That was pretty much it. Our story got picked up by the ABC News website. It got repeated by other websites like this one, the Survival Podcast. And now, thanks to a website set up by Jan's friends... It just went into overdrive from 7 o'clock on. It just hit the gas. Friends like computer expert Brad Brunhaver, donations and messages are coming in. From Lubbock, Texas. From places like Lubbock, Texas. Jackson, Mississippi. $5 from San Jose, California. Uh, you go, Jan. Are your phones lighting up about this issue? We've had phone calls and emails, yes. From around the country? Yes, from around the country. The story also has the attention of Salem's mayor. She's working to get Jan's garage sale moved to a commercially zoned location so she can keep holding more, bigger sales. Um, hopefully also that other people could donate things to her that she could sell it at the garage sale. Jan isn't thrilled at the idea of moving her garage sales. On principle, she thinks a city should make an exception to its rules. But she's grateful for people like the man who saw these $2 candlesticks in our story 
and is sending $100 to buy them. But I am totally amazed at the generosity of people and how quickly it's growing. Now at noon when we met with Brad, the donations were about $3,000. Just an hour later, they jumped another 1000 It was $8,000 an hour ago. Right now, almost $9,000. Now we know the people, they want to donate. If you go to our website, k2.com, and you go on the Inside K2 tab, all the information is there. We report, as you know, Dan, on a lot of ugly things mm -hmm. every day here in K2. But boy, I tell you, some great people out there helping out. As Brad says, this one will refresh you. Yes, Goosebumps. Yep. Dan, thank you. Well, anyway, I know I started off talking about Jan, but it's a Monday, and I like to get people kind of motivated through their week, and we talk about a lot of stuff, you know, some pretty stuff, tough stuff to look at around here, and I thought I would end the show on something kind of an upbeat as well, and I think you guys should feel really amazing about yourselves. Again, uh, remember, they just had Brad uh, Brunhaver on there uh, being interviewed, and they were talking about the totals that, that had been earned. Uh, but Brad emailed me personally this morning at 9.22 this morning, so I guess it was about 7.22 out there on the West Coast, and his total that he gave me 34,200 in donations are still coming in. Um, so I think it's awesome that we made this difference. I think that, I honestly think that if you still want to donate, fine, but I feel like we've done what we needed to do on this one, and it's time to look out for the next, uh, next place we can make a difference. I, I just want you to realize that it doesn't take a lot. It just takes a lot of people doing a little. And that's what we're able to do in the Survival Podcast now. And I think if we will take and maybe once a quarter, once every two months, find some place where people are being trampled on, and whether it's done with money, whether it's done with phone calls, whether it's done with both, if we'll keep standing up as a community, if we'll keep doing things like this, and you know, the same people maybe can't always give, but there's so many of you guys out there. If everybody can once in a while give a little bit to help, or at least pick the phone up and make a call. Call your local news station. Call the offending government. Call your friends. Send emails. If everybody will do a little bit once in a while, and we can be seen standing up as survi modern survivalists, modern survivalists and preppers standing up for somebody they don't know, all the way across the country for a lot of us. Most of us, you know, are you know, west of the or east of the Mississippi River, I think, that probably have the largest audiences, you know, thousands of miles away from this lady. Standing up and saying, not only no, but hell no, being willing to pick the phone up and call a mayor of a city across the country and say, What you're doing is wrong and say, and I'm willing to make it right. And when they try to take we've been linking to them from our website, oh bullshit. You know, seriously, I, I should link over to uh, the to call Ben Stone did where he called in. He was much nicer than I could have been. But that's not, they're not the ones that did this. People like us are. We didn't do it all. Of course not. But we did a lot. And it's going to make it, if we, the more we do like this, not just our community, you guys that are part of other forums and communities, you guys need to get in your communities too and say we all need to step up. The people like us need to be seen as the first responders in situations where liberties are threatened and people are oppressed. And because we prepare, we have surplus. And because we have surplus, we can give. That's a great way to live a better life by helping other people. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way
Yeah.